1: Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. For years, I have watched leaders identify a problem in their organization, develop a strategic plan, often with a handful of people or even with a consulting firm, go and announce it to the organization, and only to watch it fail to deliver, even though there may well have been a general initial agreement about the merits of the plan. I watched this happen over and over and over again, and I watched the leaders then get frustrated as a result. So, it seems to me that there must be a better way to do that, and that's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about a different way to realize the gains of a strategic initiative. So, with me today is Elsbeth Johnson, Elsbeth is senior lecturer at MIT's Sloan School of Management and a visiting fellow at London School of Economics. And before she was at MITI, she taught at London Business School for five years. She's worked as an equity analyst and a corporate strategy, and her consulting firm, System Shift, now works extensively with organizations and their leaders, advising them on strategy, leadership, and change. And she puts her time between London and Boston. And most importantly for today's conversation, she has a brand-new book called Step Up and Step Back. Elizabeth, welcome to the show.
2: Thanks, Wanda. Lovely to be with you.
1: Likewise, likewise i 'm actually quite excited about the stuff that you talk about because it 's so consistent with what i 've seen for years and years. But let me start at the top. Why do you think we 're failing to deliver on our expected outcome even though, even though sometimes the homework going into the planning the strategic planning was really quite good what 's going wrong?
2: Well, I think the first thing i I challenge is is the quality of the homework. Um, (laughs) So, typically what I see, um, and uh, as you say uh, in my new approach to leading strategic change, I I have different advice for leaders on this, but but all too often what I see leaders doing is specifying the activities or initiatives that people should work on as part of a new strategy rather than being really clear about the outcomes that that new strategy should deliver. That's the first problem. Another thing they fail to do very often is explain how this new strategy or the change that they want to see in the organization, how that new strategy fits with what's gone before and, frankly, fits with what employees are already working on. It's not like most strategies are deployed onto greenfield sites. But then I think the other thing that leaders often fail to do is very often they message to the organization that this new strategy um, will be fast rather than fundamental. And very often... That leads us in down a path of adopting the the famous kind of quick wins that we're so familiar with, uh, which frankly typically end up being cosmetic rather than the source of fundamental change. And so uh, for me, those are the three main problems, leaders focusing on initiatives rather than outcomes failing to explain how the new strategy fits with what's gone before and then also failing to explain that this is going to be fundamental rather than cosmetic. And therefore, um, that that also implies that that the, the work that needs to be done is of a different nature.
1: So, let's start with that top one, that they specify the activities and the initiatives versus the outcome. Why do you think it is that, and I agree with you, that's what I see all the time, we say, here's this person that's going to lead this initiative, and here's this person that's going to lead this initiative, and here's this initiative, and therefore, there it is, all done and dusted. Why do you think leaders focus on the initiatives versus the outcome?
2: Well, I I think one of the the first reasons, um, Wanda, is because that's what they're good at. That's that's Very often, being good at delivering initiatives on time, on budget, meeting the KPIs, um, is very often what got leaders promoted into being leaders in the first place. And so the, the... there's a slight addiction um, into rolling their sleeves up and, quote, unquote, helping people by choosing activities. My argument is they're not helping people at all. What, what, what would help um, is if, the, if leaders were really clear and specific about the outcomes that need, need to be achieved. And, and actually, there's more to it than that which I'll come on to in a minute, but if they were really clear about the outcomes, then actually they could leave the choice of activities. Uh, in, in other words, what work do we need to do to deliver the outcomes that are being asked for? They could leave that choosing to uh, people who are lower down the organization, frankly closer to the operations, closer to the customers, and therefore probably more likely to make better cheaper, faster, more effective choices about what activities should be worked on to deliver the outcomes. But I think the other thing is, it's not just that leaders fail to be specific about the outcomes, they're very often, um, they're not not choosing big enough outcomes over a multi-year period. So what I mean by that is, very often when I work with leaders at the start of a strategic change on what will this deliver and over what time frame. Their instinct is to go for an annual or maybe even six-monthly target, um, which actually means that, you know, the delta from where they are now to where they can get to in that relatively short time frame is not that ambitious. And the problem with that is it, it again, suggests that this can be done quickly, that the change needed is not really fundamental. And that typically short changes um, investment and focus. Whereas my argument is, if this is really a strategic change, then you should be targeting a pretty significant improvement in the outcome. And Mm -hmm. that will need to get done over multiple years. So the other thing we know about strategic change is that it's a three- to four- to five-year business. And so while you might well have regular milestones, to gauge progress towards that big multi-year target. There's a very big difference between those milestones that are gauging progress and the big multi-year target, which is actually the outcome that that you're going for.
1: Okay. I I agree with you. I, I see leaders who are afraid to actually say to the organization where they want to be in five years. Yeah. Okay, so let's be a little more, five years feels terrible in today's economy, so let's just say three years.
2: Yeah. Because they feel
1: like that's going to be too scary to the organization, a step too far to know all that's coming. So what they end up doing is rolling it out piecemeal, a piece this year and a piece next year and a piece the following year. Is that what you mean by the setting of short-term targets?
2: Yes, and and the problem with that, and and we can understand why CEOs might be uh, reluctant to put a five-year target in place. I mean, chances are, given the average duration of a CEO, they won't personally be there to see it um, come to fruition. But but what we know about the the consequences of of failing to do that is that actually companies. Um, typically focus then on uh, shorter-term, less fundamental work, and they never make the fundamental change that they need to do. They never pay down the tech debt. They never uh, clean up the customer database. They they don't make do all of that really boring, unglamorous work on which actually fundamental change is very often dependent. So, yeah, that's absolutely my experience, Wanda. And I think the other thing I would add to that is um, when we... When we say to people there 's a, there's a, a a big multi year target, very often what that enables people to do is, as long as they 've got you know the context and they, they, you know there 's enough psychological safety in the business is actually that enables them. To really think differently um, because they feel that they've got time to try stuff out, make some mistakes, learn, and then improve. And it's only when you have, you know, a three to four year time frame given to you that you feel that you can do that. Because let's remember, although CEOs might not last more than three years, uh, most employees will. And so, This is about leaders really stepping up in the early stages of a change to empower the people who are best placed to make decisions about how to do that change, and then having stepped up in those specific ways, then leaders can step back.
1: So to put it in my favorite language, what the leaders need to do is have um, a goal in mind, an outcome in mind. A destination, some might say, but not specify the how we get there.
2: Yeah, that's so they, exactly it. And they have that, that's the exactly ambition, and, and in, in the but not I, the expertise. That, that's exactly it, Wanda. And in the book, I specify just the, the 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 if you like the components of what that what a good outcome looks like. So it's it's why are we doing this? What will it deliver, and by when? And then, also, how will we behave with each other or with our customers to deliver that outcome so there's a little bit more detail and color than just you know an improvement in the p and l on a particular metric um, and it's that it's that detail and color on the outcome that enables people to determine the how okay great
1: so can you give me an example of what a good outcome would sound like?
2: Yeah, I mean there's well yes and there's also a couple of quite bad outcomes so we, it it might be uh, it might be nice to to contrast those. Um, okay. So a, a good outcome is a is a big multi-year target. So um I think a, a business that I worked with in India a number of years ago um decided that for it for its particular business, one of the things it needed to do was conserve customers rather than accept um, the typical churn rate in its industry. It was in the fund management industry. And so it decided that over a um, three to four year period, it was going to reduce the, the the customer attrition rate by 30%. Now, that's a, that was a big delta in a still high growth industry. What um, What it's, um, what it's Managers realized what that 30% improvement communicated to them was that they weren't going to be able to deliver this by just a bit of tinkering. And so they got very serious very quickly about, as I say, some of that fundamental systems and and tech issues that, that would hold them back. They solved those issues early by doing work on them and investing in them. Rather than choosing some quick wins. So for me that was a great example of um, a long term and big improvement. Really um, causing the organization to respond in a really good way. Uh, So if that's a good example, let me give you one that again I talk about in the book that's a slightly less good example. Uh, And this was the situation at a large universal bank um, back in um, 2011, um, when the then CEO decided that what they needed to deliver, particularly for the market, was a 13% return on equity by 2013, and it was famously known as 13 by 13. Now, given that that was only just over 18 months away, um, what managers, some of them very senior and well-paid, really they were left with no choice but to choose pretty short-term, relatively cosmetic improvements that produced a short-term flip in returns. And I think that's what we know about Quick Wins Wonder, which is the, the clues in the name. They are quick and they will work. But they'll only work in the short term, and so, and in fact, many in many cases they'll actually reduce long-term capacity. And as as senior folks at that bank at the time said to me, they said, "Look, we know that we are shortchanging the returns that should be coming to us in 2014 or 15 or 16 if we invested in a J curve that." that produce long-term change and long-term improvement. But we can't do that because we, what we've got is this relatively short-term target. And so for me, it, again, organizations, people, respond to the stimulus that's in front of them. So the work of leaders is to provide people with the right stimulus in the right context.
1: Okay. All right. I have to ask one more question about what's gone wrong. And the reason is, if we don't understand what we're doing wrong, then we're not as willing to look at what the solution is. But you said, so the one was about specify the outcomes versus the initiatives and the activities. And you also said that we try to do it too fast and that we need to see this as fundamental and long-term and not quick wins. But what about this idea that it has to, that you have to specify what ha- has how this change fits with what's gone before? Why is that important?
2: So that's I'm really happy you asked that question because for a lot of leaders this seems to be a missing link that if they that just doesn't get addressed. So so here's the problem. If if leaders don't say to people again, like it's not like this new strategy is being rolled out into a greenfield site. So if they don't explain how this new strategy fits with what's gone before, in other words, what people are already working on, then there's two problems. The first is that people don't really understand what they can continue to work on and what they really ought to stop and that's really important because people need to be creating bandwidth in the organization for this new strategy or this change. So the first problem that failing to explain how it fits with what's gone before causes is that it, re- it reduces the bandwidth of probably already pretty hardworking managers. The second problem, though, is a little bit more insidious and less obvious in the early stages of the change. And that is simply that that when you are trying to run two horses at the same time, the old strategy and the new strategy... You can design in conflict in the organization, and so even if people had bandwidth, they wouldn 't necessarily um, be working on uh, activities that were complementary in fact, they could be working on activities that were in conflict, uh, and that 's just a recipe for uh, not just you know suboptimal returns at a p and l level. It's also a recipe for people just getting demoralized and not really understanding and seeing the meaning in their work because what they're doing isn't as effective as it could be. So those are the two main reasons that that is really important, uh, particularly in in the launching activities, the kickoff for a new strategy.
1: Okay, so it strikes me as it is part of, I'm saying, how does this new piece, this new strategy, this new change fit with what's been gone before and with what we're currently working on? But it's in a way specifying what isn't going to fit and therefore needs to go.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And And so, exactly. Um, Michael Porter famously said that strategy is not just what you decide not to do. Sorry, it's not just what you decide to do, it's also what you decide not to do. And I would add to that, in the context of a, of leading strategic change, that actually strategic change is also what you decide to stop doing, as I say, to create bandwidth and also to minimize conflict.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and we both see this all the time, where you feel like, um, in meeting one, I'm asked to do A. And in meeting five on the same day, I'm asked to do the polar opposite of A. And that's exactly what you mean by if we're running the old strategies and the new strategies or the old activities and the new activities, we can end up with inherent conflict that is just demotivating and inefficient at a minimum, if not more. Absolutely. Okay.
2: I think what's interesting here, one is why do people do this? Because when I have this conversation with leaders, um, they intuitively get that argument, right? They can see that that would be problematic both for their business and for the people in it. But I think what um, I think one of the reasons that they can they want to continue to run two horses is that actually a lot of leaders like to hedge their position on a strategy. Um, and therefore, actually, even new strategies are sometimes not always as clear in in the choices that they've made um, as they should be. Uh, and again, I think this is just almost a misunderstanding of the concept of strategy. Strategy implies that you've made a choice, that choice is clear, and it's different from the other choices that you could have made. And so, again, I just think this is where I come back right to the – very first question you asked me, which is actually the quality of the homework really matters. And that homework is thinking homework, and then it's communicating that that thinking. Right. Right. Okay. I get that one. All right. So, if those are the mistakes
1: that we make, tell me what it is we do to fix it. How do we do this strategy and change in a better way?
2: So, what my research suggests is that the what leaders need to do is step up and do more than they would typically do in the early stages of a change, and that uh, that early stage is essentially its first year. And there's two things that they need to be doing here: they need to be providing clarity for people, and they do that actually in many of the ways that we've really talked about. They they explain what's required and how it fits with what's gone before. They talk about outcomes rather than activities. They talk about the behaviors that will help deliver the outcomes. And they explain that this is fundamental rather than cosmetic. So that, that, that's clarity. And you've got to get that right in the first couple of months of the change. And then the, the, the other part of stepping up in the first year is that you need to align the business around the change that you've asked for. And so, again, there are four ways of doing that, um, by, by talking about it at every opportunity, by, uh, by taking actions that support it, including by putting it on your senior leadership team agenda, uh, by resourcing it well, and that means people as well as budget, and then by measuring it, so um, making sure that people are incentivized and rewarded and measured on the change that you've asked for. And those four sources of alignment help to reshape the business in support of the change you've asked for. That's the stepping-up activity, and and it's really on the foundations of those two stepping-up Um, dimensions, clarity and alignment, that leaders can then in the later stages of the change successfully step back. Um, And it's not just that leaders can step back, it's actually that they should step back because that's actually what enables managers to continue with the change that's been successfully kicked off but hasn't yet started to really produce big results. Um, And so here, leaders need to do two things. Uh, They need to enable managers to focus on the change, and they do that by giving it time and making sure that managers have got um, enough slack to be learning about the improvements they're making and what's working. And then um, the other part of stepping back is to be consistent, um, and that means no new strategies or messaging about the existing strategy just so that people don't get confused. You, you just, you, you as Peters and Waterman once called it, you stick with the knitting, um, and that sounds really simple, and it turns out it's a lot trickier in practice, but, but th- that, that's the that's the, the model, that's the new approach, so step up by, by providing clarity and alignment and on the, the, that foundation, leaders can then and should then step back by providing focus and being consistent. Okay. So, and you're very clear about the step up is
1: largely in the first part, which you say roughly is the first year, so that we're constantly giving this clarity the explanation of how this fits with what was gone before, what kind of outcomes we're looking for, what kind of behaviors it's going to take to deliver that, and the message is this is fundamental change. This is not just an easy, quick, short term. So that's the clarity and then the alignment. And I want to talk just a minute about alignment. You said that there are four ways to do this alignment around the business. One is you talk about it at every opportunity, and then you take a lot of action to support it, like putting it on the agenda for the senior team, and then you resource it and you measure it. Um, I find a lot of people use the word alignment, but they actually don't know, and don't get very good alignment. So can you give us <laughs> an example of what a good alignment actually really looks like?
2: So I completely agree with that. It's a uh, it's a massively overused word and a massively underdone word in practice, in my experience. Um, so I I have got a couple of examples of people who have got um, pretty much all of those four sources working for them. Um, sadly, I've got many more examples of leaders who have only got one or two of them working for them, and, I, and it may well be helpful to talk about those leaders. So. Okay. And awful lot of leaders, I think they do know that they ought to talk about it and agitate for it. By by that I mean not just in the set piece or speech or the town hall, but when when you meet leaders in in the lift, when you bump into them um, buying coffee, uh, what are they talking about? What are they agitating for? is, is it the new strategy or is it something else? Is it perhaps the old strategy? Um, so that's, that's what we mean by talking about it at every opportunity. Mm-hmm. Um, I, think, I think most leaders do that, or at least they, they, they seem to in my experience. They also, I think, do a good job typically in actions. They, 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 can, they role model the change that they've asked for. I think leaders know that that's important. Most good leaders do that. I think they also take those initial actions, almost ticking the box on the things that they know they ought to do. Where I think some leaders fall down is in complementing those things that they can do personally with the slightly more structural work of reshaping the organization. And that's where resourcing and metrics comes in. So very often, you know, people under-resource a change. Now, sometimes that's actually because of the very thing that we talked about right at the start, wonder, which is not only are they saying that it's going to be fast, but they're slightly underselling how much change it's going to take, let alone how long it's going to take. So, for example, if, if, you, if you're Telling people that this can be done pretty easily, just with some quick wins, it's not going to be that difficult. In other words, if you've got a short-term, relatively small target rather than a big multi-year target, then becomes very easy to say, this isn't going to take much budget. We don't need to change that much to do this. We've got this. So this is where we see the link between clarity and alignment. And, and if you ask me why a lot of people fail to align on resourcing, then I have to say I think it's mainly because they failed right at the start to clarify the outcomes and the time frame. Because if you've got a big multi-year target, like that 30% improvement in customer retention that we talked about in my Indian fund management example, you know that that's going to take dedicated people, and a fair amount of budget reallocation to achieve that. So I think there's definitely a link there. It's also what i okay. saying about the people. This isn't just about money, although that matters. It's also about having the right people dedicated to this new strategy. And by the right people, I don't just mean people with the right skills, but also the stars of the organization. Everybody knows who they are, by the way. People are um, Human beings are very smart at working out who's successful, who's high potential. And, and if those people are being dedicated to the new strategy or the change, that sends a really important signal to the organization that this matters. Um, yeah. And then I think the final one is, of course, Alignment by the metrics and KPIs that you introduced uh, and this isn't just about having um, You know more more metrics in a lot of organizations that I work with they've got already far too many um, It's also about making sure that you're collecting the right data on your change um, So that you really understand and can learn about what's going on in the business as you try to make the changes that you're attempting so Changing the metrics, um, particularly the KPIs on which people get paid and bonused, again, this sends an incredibly important signal to the organization that this change is not just another thing coming from head office, actually this really matters. And so the real purpose of alignment is not just to make the organization more effective at delivering the change, it's actually to signal to people um, all the way through the organization that this change matters
1: can see that, and I can certainly see, and I agree with you that it starts right at the very beginning, that if I've not been clear about this is a big effort and it's going to take a lot of time and it's fundamental and it will change how we do every, a lot of things, then there's no way I can get the attention that I needed to get the alignment right Beyond just exactly. my, um, yeah, exactly. Okay, well, Elizabeth, that's a perfect place to take a break. So um, a reminder about this one is the notion that strategic change fails. I shouldn't say it fails. It fails to deliver the results that were promised, and it fails because we don't, spec- we don't specify the outcome. That we don't talk about how this fits with what's gone before, and we don't say that this is a fundamental change. And so, the way out of this is really to step up as the leader of the change. Step up by creating clarity on the three things that I just said, plus more. By um, I lost my notes here. Step up by creating alignment. And then to step back after the first year, and remember this is a multi-year effort, and then provide more focus and more consistency. My guest today is Elsbeth Johnson. Elsbeth is a lecturer at MIT Phone School and a visiting fellow at London School of Economics, and her consulting company is Shift System Shift, the book we're talking about. Step up and step back. We'll be right back. <music>
0: When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. If you want more information on the articles, books, coaching, and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. You're sure to find some helpful links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, Inc. Helping organizations get it and keep it. We're with you wherever Alexa and Google are, at home, in the car, on your smart TV, and your connected devices.
1: Hey, Alexa. Hey, Google. Play my favorite Voice America podcast on TuneIn.
0: It's just that easy. But don't forget to make sure you actually mention the name of the podcast show to make it work. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Leading outside of your comfort zone is a delicate balance. You need new skills and new ways of working. To reach the program today, send an email to Wanda.Wallace at LeadershipForumInc.com. That's Wanda.Wallace at LeadershipForumInc.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone.
1: Welcome back. With me today is Elizabeth Johnson, and the book we're talking about is Step Up and Step Back. Actually, I should say we're talking about Elizabeth's work for the last many years. And with that, we've been talking about the need for leaders in driving strategic change to step up, to step up in terms of clarity and alignment, and then the first year in particular, and then to step back in the subsequent two, three, four, five years where they're providing focus and consistency, meaning not changing too much along the way. Those sound simple, but I think as you see from the first segment, every single one of them is much harder to do than we realize. What I want to do in a moment is just put a little bit more um, context around, Elizabeth, around this work. So, why did you decide to pursue this particular topic?
2: Well, I guess two things came together. The first was having had um, a background as both an equity analyst where, frankly, every quarter people would um, rock up and, and say, well, we promised X and we delivered Y and there was usually a difference between X and Y, but also having then worked as a corporate strategist, um, I knew that uh, strategies very often fail, and even if they don't quite fail, they always struck me as as being harder than they needed to be for the people who were working on them. So, so that was kind of, if you like, the kind of um, you know the, the 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 demand side of the. Um, equation, And then the supply side was, was simply that I was doing a PhD and I needed a topic, and so I had a couple, um, and this made the shortlist. And, and then, of course, what you do is you look for a research site um, for the potential topics that you might want to investigate. And um, and so I had a, what I thought was a great research site that would allow me to compare the relative fortunes of essentially the same change getting done in four different business units. And so that became the, the, the PhD research, obviously in, an, in a very academic setting, and therefore it's got a ton of rigor and um, and uh, academic grounding um, and so that became a PhD um, I then started talking about it with my clients talking about the research, what the research had produced and then I um, I turned this into a book and that that was a the, the, the repurposing of academic research for a very different audience is itself a, you know a piece of work right and so yeah. um, so it, it in, in some ways this research went through a three different distinct stages. So it started off as a piece of academic research, purely academic research. It then got socialized with clients, and they, I think, improved how I talked about it, and and they certainly mm. refined the diagnostics that go into the approach. And then it got essentially produced as a book, which is the, the thing we're talking about today.
1: Yeah. Um, If you've not ever done that journey, trust me, that is a long one. And also, (laughs) writing a book these days is not for the faint of heart. So, you started this because you're partly, I think, if I understood correctly, your own observation about how frustrating strategy change was, as well as your understanding that most strategies fail, and it was harder than it needed to be on the people that were doing it. On the employees, I guess I should say, rather than on the particular leaders. Now, I don't want to go into all the analytical models but, or all the technical details of the research, but I do think it's really interesting the amount of effort you went into selecting companies, um, asking questions, exploration, you know, the people that you interviewed in some of these companies, because that gives so much context to the work that you are now doing. Can you tell us just a little bit about what was involved in the research?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So, as I said, what I what I managed to find was an organization that was delivering the same change across multiple business units. Um, and basically what I looked at in detail was four of these business units. But the, the fact that it was... That, of the four of these business units was tasked with delivering the same change meant that actually they were much more comparable. Um, it wasn't like one of them was doing a really hard change and the other one was doing a slightly easier change. They were, they were all, all of them doing the same change and so that increased comparability across the four businesses. Um, what I then did was, was picked businesses that seemed to produce very different outcomes. So, we had one case that became what I called the ideal case. That, after a really pretty slow start, actually uh, went on to almost produce exponential gains in the in the outcome and achieved its target. We had another case that produced amazing results in the first eighteen months, and then those results fell away. Uh, we had another business that just never seemed to get the change off the ground, and another one that again, after a slow start, did start to produce some outcomes, but very often would make an outcome would would make an improvement and then it would fall away so it, you could never take anything for granted in this business and so by looking in detail, so talking not, I mean, I, I talked to the CEO in this, and of each of these businesses and, and the senior team, but I spent most of my research time talking to the managers who were actually tasked with delivering the change. So really what this research does is it asks different people, in this case managers rather than leaders, different questions and also over a different period of time. So I was looking at the whole duration of the change, um, which in this case took 42 months, rather than a lot of research which just focuses on the first six or nine months of the change. Um, But I think it's important just, and I know your question hinted at this, the the different questions that I was asking them, an awful lot of the existing research tends to ask people about the events of the change. So, you know, what were the quick wins? Or what was the kickoff event like? Or what happened? And that that really fosters this belief that change is made up of events and that we just need to be descriptive about those events in order to understand them. And actually that's just not really true. Um, we, we learn much more when we look at the process by which something happens. And so rather than asking what happened, um the questions that help us unearth those sort of insights are, are questions that start with the words how and why. And so I spent a lot of time, because this is a piece of process research, asking people, well, well how did that happen? And what, why do you think that happened? And why do you think that didn't happen, even though that was something you were expecting? And so, and again, because I was looking at this over a long a long enough period of time, I could then link causally um, well, if this happened at point a uh, in this business uh, but what what was not happening at point A in this other business that caused a different outcome at point b, and so that was where the comparison of, um, of, of the process of change across these four business units really started to tell very different stories about what works and what doesn't.
1: Great. I love that. How many people did you end up interviewing? you got four business units. Um, you're talking to CEOs and senior management teams, but as you said, you're spending most of your time with the managers. How many people did you end up talking to across all of this, just an estimate?
2: So it was probably about 120 people but the critical thing for this kind of research is how many times you speak to them. This is not ah. one and done. Um, so, so I would have interviewed all of the people in the change team, um, including okay. some people who you know were well not quite entry level, but but pretty junior. And the idea was to speak to um, everyone um, a, a minimum of three times. So, um, and and to leave a bit of time between each interview, and the reason you do that is just to make sure that you are, um, you know, the the, the insights and data that you're capturing um, is not subject to impression management, or they're not trying to tell you a story that sounds good to them. They're actually just trying to tell you the story of what happened Um, and so that's why this kind of research is particularly time consuming. The other thing you're always trying to do with this kind of research is you're trying to to validate it by um, by getting what academics call artifacts, but what you and I would call documents from the organisation. So, powerpoints from the time, press releases, um, the speech, annu- you know, from the kickoff event, um, the the Gantt chart, the, the the diagrams that showed the process chart that showed yes. um, how and why things were happening. So so that all of the stories that my informants were telling me were backed up by documents from the time. And, and that becomes quite important as a way to show um, rigor in the in the data. Right, right. I think that, I mean, we don't often
1: talk about the research methodology, and, you know, I've done some work myself that has had incredible rigor, and I've done some work that I know doesn't have quite as much rigor. I still think the results <laughs> are conclusive, but... You know, we often get a little light on the rigor, and what I think is so interesting about this is how much rigor there is behind getting there. Yeah. All right. Um, We talked a lot about alignment and consistency and the importance of those two, and, well, we talked a lot about alignment, let me say that, in this last segment. And I want to go a little bit deeper because you say in the first two parts for the leader, I've got to do the clarity, and then I've got to create the alignment. And then as I step back as a leader in the subsequent years, I want to do focus and consistency. So what is it about consistency that's so important? And you think it's tied to alignment. So explain that to me.
2: So, I mean, consistency is is really important because by this stage, the managers in the organization are starting to make progress but the outcome mm-hmm. isn't yet delivered. And remember, that outcome is a big multi-year target outcome. Um, and so if if anything happens that is inconsistent with the outcome or the, the strategy that was announced probably a year or 18 months ago now, then managers can get derailed, and the, then the change itself can get derailed. I actually have a theory one, though, which is that It's probably not true that most change fails. I think it's probably true that most change um, simply gets prematurely stopped by leaders (laughs) who run out of patience. And and so that's really what stepping back through both focus and consistency is trying to enable, which is that managers can get on with delivering the change that they've started, but which hasn't quite yet delivered its outcome. And that's just because you haven't given it enough time. And consistency right. is really important to give it time because otherwise the change can be derailed. Um, right. I, I think the other thing worth saying is that if w- what we mean by consistency is, first of all, that all of the changes, you know, the clarity, and the alignment, the changes to resourcing and KPIs that you made in that first year have been maintained. So you haven't gone back on any of those. But it's a bit more than that. It's also that you've introduced no conflicting strategies or messaging in the meantime. Now, personally, I think a lot of leaders really struggle with this. So remember where we are in the change, right? We're probably, well, this is from year two onwards, but I think this becomes a real problem for leaders sort of into the second and third year. and. You know, when I think about why that is, I think it's partly because leaders, they just think they need to be doing stuff and making decisions. And actually, what we're talking about here, what's required for consistency, is not doing new stuff, not making new decisions, not changing your mind or tinkering with it or interfering, but just kind of getting out of the way, being consistent, so not stepping out, but, but, but getting out of the way, so stepping back. And and I just think a lot of leaders just don't really think of that as the work of leadership. And and I think, therefore, that this actually requires us to have a, a really very different view of what The work of leadership requires. I think we've got quite addicted to, you know, this kind of slightly heroic, almost Hollywood version of what it takes to lead change, where it's all action packed and fast and uh, dramatic uh, and and based on activities. And I think leaders are slightly addicted to that. Um, And as, as I say. But by now in the organisation, it should be managers—the people deciding on yeah. how to deliver the change—who right. are having a really interesting time, because right. they are year two, year three into their projects, their initiatives. Assuming they've got time to focus on them, they are learning about them, so they're getting better and better over time at making the calls about what to work on and where to invest. Yeah. Um, so they're having a really interesting time. Leaders actually need to be prepared to be bored. Okay. And so I think a lot of people who are smart and high-achieving, as leaders tend to be, have first of all, as I say, a misconception of what the work of leadership is. But I also think that as high-achieving, smart people they have a little bit of a problem with being bored. And the, the critical thing here to deliver consistency is that you, you might well be bored. You haven't come up with a new strategy for, you know, two or three years. And it's fine because the strategy that you put in place two or three years ago is in the process of delivering. It's interesting right. one that I, um, I sometimes find that January is my most dangerous time um, <laughs> and, and actually my most busy time as an advisor because leaders have come back from Christmas holiday. They might have picked up a book in an airport and they've got a shiny new idea that they would like to feed into the system, um, mm-hmm. and when actually that's the absolutely last thing the system needs. And right. so a lot of my January advice to leaders is don't do it. The, the, yeah. the, the shiny new idea, I'm sure it's shiny and it's very attractive for you, but actually mm-hmm. as long as you still think the original strategy is the right thing for the business, then you just, you just carry on doing that.
1: um, I agree with you about the January and the shiny new idea. It's so consistent, this observation that leaders, you know, can't be comfortable not doing things. It's consistent with my notion about the expert leader. And I don't mean that CEOs are experts, but they're expert in the strategy. They've done a lot of work thinking about what's the right strategy and what's my role in leading that strategy and my idea to have the vision and all of that. And they put all that effort in it and it gave them a purpose and a sense of meaning and they are now the expert in it. But to be able to step away from that and say, now someone else has to run it, not me. Yep. And I am no longer the expert in what needs to happen. And by the way, I don't need to create anything new is really hard because then I'm sitting there going, well, what's my value? What's my worth? What's my, like, nobody needs me. Now what? And people don't get to be CEOs because they are happy not to be needed.
2: Yeah, I mean, you know, just because you're not changing your mind and feeding in all of your shiny new ideas that you've picked up into the system, that doesn't mean you're not doing anything. Um, I, yeah. I think there's, it's important to say here that sure. when, when I say that you need to step up and then step back, I'm not saying that you need to step out. Yes. So you don't, you don't take a holiday. Uh, you, you still have a job to do. And that job involves reiterating all of the stuff that you talked about in the first year so why are we doing this? Why now? What does good look like? Um, you know, this is going to be fundamental rather than fast. Uh, it, it, as I say, it entails doing all of the stuff uh, and keeping up with all of the stuff that you did to align the organization around the change you've asked for. Um, so the structural changes to resourcing and, and metrics So you're still doing all of that. You're just not doing anything new. And I think it's the the addiction to newness that that leaders need to wean themselves off. Um, I think the other thing, Wanda, is that this really does require, back to your very first question, that the quality of the initial homework was high because... I think sometimes people rush into a new strategy because they feel that they've got optionality on it. They feel like, well, if it doesn't work out in the first 12 to 15 months, I can always change my mind and come up with something else. And so the the feeling that you can change your mind, I think, is part of the reason that enables us to sometimes rush out a strategy before it's properly cooked. And and so this approach, you know, it is very self-reinforcing because it says you really have to sweat the clarity before you're ready to go. And that if you've done that, you won't need to change your mind. You won't need an alternative strategy. But equally, you really can't have one either. Um, Now, obviously, if something exogenous happens, you know, we should always be paying attention to what's happening outside the window, right? If if competitors are responding differently or customers' preferences are changing or regulators are coming up with new rules that that govern our business, then we may well need to change that strategy. It is legitimate um, to do that. But... Having changed it, you kind of then have to go back to the beginning and do clarity and alignment for that new strategy in the same way as you did it for for the one that you're currently working on.
1: Right. Right. Makes a ton of sense. Um, we have just a couple minutes before we close. I think it's a very interesting idea, and I'm going to do this one by a personal story of a client that I was working with, manufacturing facility, manufacturing business, and they had just introduced this massive change, massive, massive, massive change. And the people that had introduced the change were now started of getting restless because we'd done year two. And we were into the year three and kind of beginning to think, let's plan what we need to be doing next year, because now that we've done this big change, we need to kind of get ahead of what's coming next. And so, you know, sit down with, um, in this particular case, I sat down with the leaders of some particular parts of the business that were involved in this change, and they were being resistant, according to the driver of the change of anything new. And then, you know, come in and explain just why they're being resistant. And when you sit down with those leaders and you say, what's on your plate? What are you thinking yeah. about? What are you concerned about? And the number one concern from every single person was, if I don't do this system and this thing and get this thing done, then all this work we've done for three years is dead. But if you're not in the trenches with that, you miss it. <laughs> right. Right. Walked myself out of a consulting piece of business of this particular job, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> but it stopped an organization from jumping to something that they weren't ready to do.
2: Absolutely right. Okay. And, and very often it. I think the best advice is, is to not do something and uh, that's potentially far more valuable. Obviously, we have no proof of that. You couldn't have a counterfactual yeah. otherwise. But it, it, very often I think um, it, advising people to stick with what they are working on, provided that the learning loops are there. And actually, you sat in on, on a learning loop. It was just a, a learning loop between leaders and managers, one of I'll the try most it. important. Okay. All right.
1: Well, Elspeth, we are out of time, sadly. There's much more that we could be talking about. Mm-hmm. My guest today is Elizabeth Johnson. Um, her consulting firm is called System Shift, and the book is Step Up and Step Back. And I think, Elspeth, what's most compelling to me about this one is really redefining the work of the leader in terms of change, in terms of the upfront work of com- creating clarity and saying particularly to people, why are what, what we're doing consistent or inconsistent? And what are we going to keep doing and not doing? How does it fit with what we've been doing before? And what's the outcome we're striving for? I just think that is such an important message. And then the second part of that is then to step back and let the organization largely run with it, not you define what needs to be done and how it needs to be done. So, Elspeth, thank you for being a guest.
2: You're so welcome. It was great to have that conversation with you, Wanda.
1: And likewise with you join us next week for another episode in getting out of your comfort zone.
0: Thank you for joining us today. Tune in for another edition next week with Dr. Wanda Wallace on the Voice America Business Channel. Reach outside your comfort zone this week.